Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining our webinar this afternoon. I'm Andrew Howard, Managing Director at BECG, and this is the latest in a series of webinars we've been doing addressing key issues affecting the housing and planning sectors today. And I'm delighted to be joined by such an expert panel to help us discuss garden communities. Well, I, I need to say this quickly, but it's well over 25 years since I joined this industry. And in that time, I've seen governments come and go, but two of the great um, hardy perennials in this industry, one, there is a housing crisis, what are we gonna do about it? And two, planning is very difficult. How can we help planning reform to deliver more houses? One of the subtexts behind those questions has always been this issue about large-scale residential development. It's not a new idea, it's been around for well over 100 years. And we'll all be familiar with the very early model villages in New Lanark in Glasgow, Port Sunlight near Liverpool, and of course Bourneville in Birmingham. And everybody will be familiar with the Lechford model from the beginning of the last century. So there's nothing new under the sun, as they say. Well-planned, well-thought-out, large-scale residential communities are not new. But every government, almost every generation, gets a new go at coming up with programmes, and methods of delivering on this agenda. Some of you will remember Gordon Brown and the Eco Homes Initiative. And now we're talking about um, garden communities, which the current government has really kick-started off since uh, 2014, picked up by the new administration last year. So there are now 49 live garden community projects across the country. There's lots of different structures behind them, different um, landowner um, situations, different involvements from local authorities or central governments, and different scales and different approaches. Some are um, very successful, some have been in difficulties for quite a long time. So what we're trying to do today really is to see how are garden communities part of the solution to that long-standing problem of delivering quality homes and quality communities in the UK, and what are the barriers, what are the difficulties, and what can we do to unlock some of the problems and challenges we face? So we've got a, a really expert panel here today. Mary Parsons, who's chair of the Town and Country Planning Association. Sandra Fryer, a former board member and chair of the planning committee at Ebbsfleet Garden Village, Garden City. And John Beresford, managing director at Buckland Development Limited, the master developer of Wellborn Garden Village in Hampshire. So I'm going to kick off and ask each of our panellists to speak for six, seven minutes around this theme and then we'll have general questions and try and bring in some questions from our audience. So firstly we've got Mary Parsons, as I said, currently chair of the TCPA, a very uh, extensive career in regeneration and development and most recently one of the commissioners on the government's Building Better Beautiful Commission. So really from a TCPA perspective, Mary, can you kick off and introduce this subject and, and give us your perspective on how garden communities are part of the solution? 
Thanks, Andrew, and I'll um, I'll certainly do my best. So I'm going to mesh a few different perspectives, um, as you said, as chair of the TCPA, and we obviously we love our garden cities, um, but also from the Building Better, Building Beautiful Commission, and actually as a developer and a master developer, having worked on large scale development. Um, and I think you know, first thing, as you said, garden cities have been higher on the agenda than they have been for generations, and there are some really good things happening out there, as um, I'm sure Sandra and and John will be touching on. But it is fair to say that progress has in many cases been really slow um, and delivery has been quite constrained. So today, um, following some really good advice I was once given that don't only focus on what's wrong, also focus on what's strong and the positives that, that we can see as well as the challenges. So, so on the positives. As you say, we've got the government's garden communities program. We've got Homes England's role, which we can perhaps pick up later in terms of infrastructure funding, land assembly, being a master developer themselves, as well as supporting local authorities planning for growth. We've got some good examples where the garden city principles are enshrined and adopted in local plans. So they set the framework for it to happen. And we've had amended regulations on the locally led Newtown development corporations and even the competition um, on the development corporation delivery models. Although, to be honest, um, others might know a bit better what happened on that one. So we've had some really good things um, at a strategic level. But I suppose the first question I'd pose is, do we sense there's any real deep political buy-in at the highest levels of government? And is there actually a common understanding of what a garden community should represent? Because from a TCPA perspective, as Sandra will know, we have our nine garden city principles and they guide everything that we do. And we advocate them as a model for sustainable placemaking. And they boil down a garden city into being about land value capture and community stewardship, strong vision and leadership, genuine community participation, that it's about creating healthy, walkable, sustainable, creative places, that you offer a range of homes and tenures that are genuinely affordable for the people that live there, that you support local employment growth, and that it's a development that respects and enhances the natural environment. And these principles are not a pick and mix, they are in fact a recipe sheet. And one of the issues I think has been where people have cherry picked some and prioritise them and ignored some of the ones like land value capture that are perhaps in the, the, the too difficult box. And it's never going to truly work because they are not just a set of design and planning principles. They are a whole ecosystem, a, a sort of philosophy and model of development. And, and that embraces community and economy in the long term, as well as how we actually plan and deliver places to live. And I think, you know, it's not just a case of sticking the word garden in front of something that was planned as an urban extension for, say, 3000 homes and then thinking it becomes something else. It isn't a marketing spin and you can see where it has been used as that. Um, and that's not aiming it at developers. That's aiming it at, at any politicians who feel that a bit of greenwash will make a controversial development suddenly more palatable. Um, because this is about something where everyone involved must be genuinely and deeply committed to it, to working in partnership, to staying in the long term. Because it's garden communities are not just about delivering houses. They might be part of the response to the housing crisis, but they're about creating thriving places and you need employment, education and infrastructure. But we do seem to still be defining and measuring them in terms of the number of homes they can deliver. So I think scale is, is an issue we, we should uh, perhaps touch on, because I think a number of the so-called garden communities, particularly at the village end, they're not really big enough to support and sustain a whole place offer. 
they may be really, really good examples of really high quality residential led growth, but they shouldn't claim to be something that they're not. And they must make that link with economic growth and opportunity. Um, we've had reports about them being car dependent commuter dormitories. They've got to promise and deliver a different and a better way of life from the outset. And I think post COVID, that's going to be as important as it was with the original garden cities, because we're going to be dealing with the same issues all over again. And I think the Garden Cities programme, it's delivered some great stuff on healthy places, stewardship, sustainable movement. Um, but we also, with the programme, need something that sits above individual land ownerships on many occasions and even local authority boundaries, something that, that's of a bigger scale, that ensures all of the growth is knitted together and is of the same quality and that the infrastructure goes in at the right time. And that's what the Garden Communities programme was there to do. But I think many councils lack the fundamental. They might have the ambition, but they don't often control the land and they can use their planning function and levers. But then what happens when they're trying to embed strategies and standards on land that's already allocated in a plan or they keep hitting phase on phase of viability arguments from developers? So they need to work and really collaborate with the landowners and, and some do it really well. Um, but others run it almost as a parallel program in isolation to the private sector and they think they can just leverage influence through things like infrastructure funding. But the public sector's taken a real lead on the critical role of stewardship, um, but they're often viewing that as stewardship of green infrastructure and not the whole investment model and the role that the landowner and the master developer plays. And this is where I'm just touching on the Building Better, Building Beautiful Commission. It talked a lot about the stewardship development model, about addressing some of the barriers in terms of tax and finance that act as a disincentive to, to patient investment, which is what we need. That we need to be able to view infrastructure as an investment and not just a cost burden on a development. But actually, if you give it to some house builders, the first thing they'll do is say there's too many schools, there's too much affordable housing, we need a viability assessment and it, that's not bashing the house builder model it's just saying it's not the right one um, but it's still often the one that we actually assess the, the potential for development in and I think house builders have a really valuable role to play but but their, their experience of that place tends to end when they hand over the key of the last home that they build we've got to have that longer term dimension around them um, which brings in the question of time and in particular, you know, we've had massive investment by Homes England into infrastructure funding, but it goes in over too short a timescale. These communities, these places can take over 20 years to deliver. So we need to get government behind putting in funding in a way that can pump prime, that can de-risk, it can support cash flow, but understand they've got to be a patient investor too and take their capital and returns out further down the line. You know, I've seen... A lot of examples recently where decisions on infrastructure deliveries more about how you can spend the money in the timescales that you've been allocated it rather than actually what's going to unlock the best long term value. And we're making long term decisions on too short um, a timescale. And I think the other thing is, you know, we need proper 20 year investment and delivery plans for these places locked in, give confidence to the public and the private sector and take the politics out of the decisions on them. Because Something like a garden town is going to ride many different economic cycles and general elections and local plan reviews. The viability and planning can't be measured only against current day thinking and how we deliver smaller development, because we've got to get that balance between deliverability today and not building in inflexibility 
for the future. And I think this is where they often struggle from a planning point of view. And it would be interesting on Sandra's experience on this. You've got to get the right fixes at the planning application stage to know it's going to be delivered and it's going to be delivered well. But you've got to give it that flexibility for future knocks and the inevitable change. And I think planning authorities really struggle to deal with that because of, of the scale and the time. Um, I think as well, the other thing that is needed uh, is real civic leadership. And it's often a very, very brave decision for local politicians to believe in the vision of a place and the opportunities it can bring that can be long after their political career. But from a TCPA point of view and the new communities group, you know, we see some fantastic examples of that really brave leadership. Because as well as scale, so time and delivery, that vision and belief in the vision is essential. Um, the commission, uh, just wrapping up, said, you need to own a place at both a local and national government level. Said at national level, we should have a cabinet post as a minister of place who can work across the different um, departments of government. And at a local level, the leader or the chief executive who can really champion it and can cut across the silo mentality and bring everyone together that we need to deliver a place. And I think what we do see, just in conclusion, you know, you can have dedicated roles within the planning departments for garden communities but it doesn't have the clout to make things happen. And I think above everything else, that's what garden communities really need to actually be a reality. And I'll hand back, thanks. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you very much, Mary. And before I move on to Sandra, just a supplementary question. You stress, um, Mary, the 20 the year long-term vision, the need for civic leadership, the need for a kind of overview to sort of hold the ring as it were on um, garden communities. Does that mean that in your view, really it has to be led by the public sector, whether it's a development corporation model or a local authority model. And do you think our public sector vehicles, if you like, and structures are sort of fit for purpose? Oh, I mean, I think that's one we could really get into a good debate a bit later on. I mean, I think the public sector needs to own that vision for their area. I think that's really important. And yeah. it has to have that, that local buy-in. But I also think a lot of the areas that these um, new communities are happening in, they're in planning authorities or multiple authorities that really haven't experienced that delivery of scale. And I think as well, you know, you can have willing landowners, you can have master developers. The public sector alone right now doesn't have all of the skills available to do it. And if we look back to the new towns, um, we've heard many times, you know, how many staff Milton Keynes Development Corporation had at its peak, you know, 900 people and whatever. We're not at that level. We need to forge it in partnerships. And I think that's really the only way is breaking the barriers between the public and private sector and building some, some new trust. Thank you very much. Well, it's probably a good time now to bring in Sandra Fryer. Uh, Sandra has over 25 years experience in planning, regeneration and sustainable development at director level, mainly in the public sector, and for 15 years has run her own consultancy business and interim management company. Um, Sandra's a former board member of Fleet Garden City and chair of their planning committee, and a trustee of the TCPA, I believe. And I think recently, Sandra, you contributed to the TCPA's urban policy report. So I'd be really interested to hear your view as somebody who's, as it were, been on both sides of the fence, the public and the private sector, and tried to get schemes moving. Sandra. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you, Andrew. And thank you for Mary for setting the strategic scene for garden cities. I'm now going to give you the detail or some information about Ebsfleet. 
Um, I joined Ebsfleet as an urbanist, as someone who wanted to help shape a great new place. And it was great fun working within that organization and supporting the leadership with that vision. Ebsfleet is located 17 minutes from central London in the Thames Gateway, well connected to local communities in Gravesend and Dartford, and with strong links to the rest of Kent. This was the first new garden, of the garden city of the 21st century. It's a really unique kind of garden city, not starting with a blank sheet of paper. This is an area that had been talking about regeneration for some years, had many master plans, but had been slow to bring forward the new homes. It's a government-sponsored scheme, and it was set up in 2015 under the older urban development corporation style rules for regeneration. It's not set up under the new town model. The main purpose of Ebsfleet was to speed up the delivery of homes and jobs in North East Kent. It's run by a board comprising the three local authorities, the leaders of Dartford and Gravesham, and a senior member from Kent County Council, and seven non-exec directors, and supported by an exec team of 32 people. The pace of work at Ebsfleet has been incredibly impressive, and I would often sit at the board and go, wow, we've made so, progress, so much progress from one month to the next. The response to the pandemic from health and wellbeing surveys to the 20-minute neighbourhoods has been the testament to a very creative team. So I've got quite a bit to share. The overall vision for the Garden City was to build 15,000 new homes and create 30,000 new jobs in a great new place predicated on those really important Garden City principles. In a way, we were retrofitting to work that had been previously done. So we started with, in 2017, the board in adopting an implementation plan, which brought together the previous approvals into one overall arching kind of master plan, which would go forward to underpin the EDC's corporate plan, the capital programme and the spending review bids, which we had to do every year. The, the uh, vision is a very strong framework of the central area of the Garden City, alongside the high-speed rail links to London, to, to Kent and to Europe. This is planned as a commercial and specialist centre, along with retail and community facilities. There will be six new neighbourhoods, each with their own character, with local services at their heart, new shops, pharmacies, small business space, and linked to the central area by walking and cycling routes. The Garden City will have two new secondary schools and seven new primary schools. These are being designed to a high standard, aiming for BRIAM Excellent. The EDC has adopted an amazing community engagement model in developing community hubs for arts, sports and broader community support. And I'm happy to talk about that more in a bit. The EDC has developed proposals for a Garden City Trust that will look after the long-term stewardship of the Garden City community buildings, open space, public realm. This is a real triumph. It's been complicated to work through and we have government support to take that forward now, or the Garden City does. I shouldn't use the we because I'm not there. <laughs> the building blocks are in place to enable the uh, emerging London resort project to come forward. This is a long held ambition for a project on the peninsula, a national strategic infrastructure project and NSIP. It will be determined by the planning inspectorate. It's planned, to, it, there's the opportunity to, for this to be carefully planned to bring maximum benefit along garden city principles. There are some things to note about Ebsfleet. This is a major brownfield project on land ravaged by former chalkworks, which have created an amazing canvas for a new place planned around green and blue infrastructure. It is important to note that the formal planning, the formal planning powers lie with the two district councils and the county council. 
the housing schemes are predicated. I'm so sorry. The housing schemes are predicated on old planning approvals with an old-fashioned Section 106 agreements. For example, contributions for the library, adult social care, and education go to Kent County Council and are not being spent in every week. So there's something to, to work on and straighten out there. There's a great relationship between the ma main land promoter and with the major house builders who have been happy to rise to the Garden City vision and enhance standards in exchange for a good planning service. So we were able to tweak the uh, original approvals, raise some questions about long-term sustainability and enhanced design. To underpin its vision, the EDC is, however, having to develop its own informal planning guidance, design guides, public realm strategy, community asset plans, and a healthy living proposal, as, as well as um, some detailed master planning. The EDC receives government funding to speed up growth, to support running costs and infrastructure costs. Clearly, that's an ongoing concern and something to come back to. The issues to consider going forward are that the Garden City benchmark has been really important. Ebbsfleet did not start with a blank canvas. I think that would have been easier. At Ebbsfleet, the land value capture had already gone to the landowners. We've had to develop renewed partnerships and bring in extra funding to achieve the ambitions of the Garden City. The Development Corporation has enabled focus, funding and dedication to speed up delivery of new homes, new jobs and great new places. I found in my position on the board that I often had concern that we weren't doing enough to support local economic development for existing older businesses to modernise and intensify. Some of those are particularly down on the peninsula to capture the creative businesses that were seeking to move out of London and space for pop-up businesses. Some of those modern urban solutions that we see in and around London needed to transfer down to our garden city and also to make sure decent jobs were created for local people. There may be further opportunities to regenerate more sites in the Garden City. There might be some planning policy issues there, but there are some sites that aren't included and there is an opportunity still to develop some exemplar new projects. This is at least a 20 year project. Mary and I didn't rehearse that, but it will take at least that long. I've been hunting for an end date. There isn't one set out in statute, but the Garden City and some other model of joint collaboration will be required to sustain the, the development of ideas and their implementation. The pandemic may have caused a pause, but not a stop for Debsleet. Its location, the new lifestyle, is proving very attractive to people moving out of central London, entrepreneurs working from home. The immediate challenges are creating vibrant neighbourhoods post-COVID to support the new work-life balance to support people living and working more locally to adopt the 20-minute um, neighbourhood type model and we're now hearing from the house builders these are major national house builders they want to amend their housing design to accommodate more office home working space and a bit more outdoor space I think that's great news in conclusion um, it's a great privilege to work with Ebsfleet and indeed to be chair of the planning committee I had some concerns and reservations about being a non-politician taking on that role, and I've got thoughts to share. But it's um, a great place, and I hope you will all take the opportunity to go and find out more about it in due course. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you I'm very much. I'm about the phone and the sun. That's okay, Sandra. Well, I'm just waiting for one of my children to burst in. Um, I um, Very interesting, the Ebsfleet example, because just the sheer scale and complexity of it makes it fascinating. Mary made the point before about 
um, garden communities principles and a, and a philosophy and it's a I think the phrase you used was a recipe rather than a pick and mix um, and there's certain principles you have to follow but at Ebbsfleet you weren't starting with a blank canvas you had previous planning consents that had already been granted and other players obviously a development corporation sort of held the ring but now you mentioned um, the, the inspectorate coming in through an NSIP approval for the resort do you think that the sheer scale of Ebbsfleet makes it possible, if you like, to do the whole thing and to follow the philosophy? And how does that translate into some of the smaller garden communities which don't have those advantages? I think it's absolutely pos possible to follow the Garden City principles and the implementation plan from 2017 set it out with that ambition. Um, that then meant a mixture of funding for projects, uh, negotiations with landowners, uh, and applicants as the schemes were coming forward and actually some work to fill some of the gaps and I've mentioned um, the economy area which you know my colleagues on the board thanked me for continuing saying are we doing enough are we doing enough because I wasn't sure we were but um, yeah no I, the model works the garden city principles are clear we the green and blue infrastructure at Street is amazing that external natural environment that walking that connectivity that sustainability is really powerful but i think the most important success is getting the garden city trust approved up and running the funding and the model for delivery is not dissimilar to the kind of regeneration companies i've set up in communities in the past it will take um, a strong board of trustees and, and and people to keep an eye on it and they need to be entrepreneurial as they hopefully get back the management of the open space that house builders have previously let out to leaseholder type companies as they take over the management of the community spaces, the sports centres and perhaps some of the small business pop-up opportunities. That will be a really creative and important opportunity for the Garden City for the long term. And just like places like Ledgeworth have, have, have set up and have had for years. Mm. Okay, thank you. Well, both Mary and Sandra have mentioned in passing the role of house builders and the development industry, the private sector, in this. So it's a good time now to introduce John Beresford. John, many of you will know as a uh, former house builder with Bryant and uh, Taylor Woodrow, went on to play a key role with Granger and has been involved with complex large-scale residential developments for many years. John is currently managing director at Buckland Development Limited. Buckland are the master developer of Wellborn Garden Village in Hampshire. And before I let John speak, I must publicly congratulate him on a very successful planning consent yesterday. I have to say, John, I'll confess that I was worried if the planning consent hadn't gone through, what mood you'd be in today. So hopefully you'll be in a good mood and feeling very positive. John. I, I... Uh, well, yeah, thank you very much. I, I am in a good mood, and uh, and I, I don't, I'm not sure if uh, if anyone's from Ferrum are in here, but uh, certainly I know they've uh, spent some long, long hours uh, getting us uh, over over the line uh, eventually. So uh, anyway, yeah, thank you, um, yeah, John Beresford. So uh, you know, you've made the introduction. Um, I'm sort of responsible for um, 
for Wellborn. I mean, you say you introduced me as currently the uh, in my role. I sort of uh, it's a garden village, so uh, I reckon I'll be uh, I'll be seeing this through to the end. Uh, hopefully, uh, I'll be cutting the grass when it's all completed as part of some sort of management uh, trust. Um, we've got six thousand homes at Wellborn. Note, noted the uh, the comment about that you made about sort of do, you know do you need the scale and stuff like that. I think I think yeah, clear, it's a sort of horses for courses. Clearly, you do for for a lot of the what you want to do is you want to make sure you scale up the the infrastructure and the facilities and uh whilst at granger we had um uh, you know we, we owned part owned the uh Morpool village in uh, in harborn and and that, that that was much smaller and yet and yet that's still to this day is, is probably a sort of such a, a prime example of, uh, of one of the original garden villages still has all the qualities um so just just what I thought I'd do uh, is just talk about sort of um, I think you wanted me to sort of just ex explain sort of you know how, some of the obstacles that we're coming across today, some of the opportunities, you know, some of the things that are keeping us awake at uh, at night. Um, as I said, Wellborn sort of six thousand uh, houses. We've got sort of a, you know a sort of a, a district centre, a local a village centre, sort of you know like a sort of town centre. We've got to be careful. We don't want to compete with uh, uh, with with the local uh, towns. Um, we're making sure that we've we've got all the facilities that, that you would hope for uh, in a town. I mean, we, we've got this sort of this mantra, which uh, which our, our um, uh, landowner um, uses all the time, which is, you know, we're the size of Petersfield, so don't undercook it. You know, so and it's quite important that because when you see a lot of these urban extensions and these these garden villages, you know, we sometimes fail to sort of look at and compare them to sort of places that we like and nearby that that are successful. Um, and and it's quite right, you you can end up undercooking the facilities. There's there's lots of lots of green open space within uh, a place like Wellborn, and um, you know there's obviously the structural things, the parks, the woodlands, and stuff like that. But but the most important thing is that is the is the heart of it. So things like sort of the, the verges, the gardens, making sure that you know everyone gets the fruit tree when they when they buy a house uh, here and. Uh, um, verges, which uh, which we we we're constantly battling with um, with the local highways authorities as to how you deal with them, and you know, God forbid, we want to put trees in the uh, in the verges. Um, I, I did I did help uh, Mary and her colleagues uh, at the Build Better Build Beautiful Commission on that sort of highways infrastructure side because you know I think I think you know at a senior level, lots of people realise that you know developments are sort of shaped and I think Mary's used the phrase I've used the phrase a lot sort of I think it was quoted in the thing that you know our, our developments are sort of designed from the sort of the wheelie bin up aren't they at the moment or sort of uh, so um so we do have to be mindful of that. I've, I've long been a fan of, of, of garden villages, um, you know, sort of all, all my life and but I do have this I do feel that we've got this duty of care to sort of protect the i mean we, we've spoken about philosophy concepts the sort of the, you know we, we do have a duty of care to protect that um i'm always always very conscious that we've you know we've also got that sort of almost duty of care respect to the tcpa as well because you know that it's 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 their baby in some respects and uh, and i think um you know as she said we've been sort of cherry picked by uh, by some people i think we were one of the 14 that were sort of announced in the first wave of the sort of the the uh, the renaissance of, of the garden villages uh, about sort of five six years ago um and I, I keep in keep in touch with, with with the rest of them to sort of find out where they are and obviously very competitive wanted to make sure that we're uh, breaking ground um you know uh, the first um some of them are very mediocre um uh, you know i'm afraid to say others 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 are, others are good it's a mixed bag 
at best. I don't, I don't mean that in a, in a drugs way. I mean, it's a mixed bag in terms of some are being delivered by, um, by public sector, some are de delivered by landowners, some are house builders, and, and they're di different locations. There's some, some in more challenging areas. So I think it's sort of, it's going to be really interesting to sort of see. I don't think uh, any, any of them you'd be able to put alongside each other and, uh, and compare on a, on a like for like uh, basis. Um, I, I do still, I'm a bit concerned, but do still worry that um, the Garden Village is still high up on the uh, the government's agenda. Um, you know, uh, there's a sort of, someone said oh, it was initiative of the last government, uh, which worried me when they were talking about the Build Better Beautiful. And and I, I sort of, I, I hope that um, when we get our government back, I mean, on the basis that they're, they're flat out dealing with other things at the moment, that they may be able to knit those, knit the Build Better Beautiful and the Garden Villages and try and sort of um, get, get, the, get the two uh, working working together, because I think some of the parts will be, will be greater than the individual parts. Um, and I think there's a, without a bit of, of effort at that government level in terms of leadership, deliverability, they're sort of the, um, I use that phrase, the sort of the silos of, of government. I think one thing we've we've felt is that there isn't there isn't anyone to go to that you can sort of get that can join up the various different departments. So with garden villages, you need you're talking about big infrastructure, big utilities. So therefore, you know, you're very often talking to people like the DFT, and you've got the MHCLG on this on some fund, funding things, and get it, getting those two uh, things linked up is is, is quite hard. I, I just wonder whether or not we do need that sort of that uh, uh, that that champion, because if we if we don't, uh, you know, it, it could wither on the uh, uh, on the vine. Um, and LEPs as well. Obviously, don't let's not forget the LEPs because most of the uh, the funding for growth and development comes uh, comes via these. But ju just turning to Wellborn, um, sort of um, some of the things that we're we're sort of uh, having to deal with. I mean, we're we're, we're questioning, you know, what what the garden village of the 21st century looks like. What does it feel like? I think um, we've got this uh, phrase, the best of best of yesterday, best of tomorrow, that we, that we we use internally to try and sort of you know make sure that we're uh, we're fil filtering things out. Um, we, we did some some work. We did, we're currently doing it actually on on sort of uh, strategy and and making sure that what making sure that our understanding of the garden village is the same uh, to to the layperson. And interestingly, there are some people that do come back and, you know, if you talk to them about garden villages, I mean, to me, a garden village is like a teddy bear or chocolate. It's sort of, you know, what isn't there to like about a garden village? It's just, you know, it, 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 it should tick every, every box that you have. But some people do have images, you know, and uh, we've got to be very careful here, but not, not to offend anyone from Basingstoke or places like Harlow. But, you know, the, the, the people sometimes confuse garden villages with, with the new towns movement. And obviously, you know, if the first impressions count or you're trying to get people over the line, you need to make sure that you've all got that sort of consistent sort of messages as to what they uh, what they stand, stand for. I mean, I don't know. It's a question we're asking ourselves. Is it important that a garden villages, village has its uh, has a has a sort of a, a similar identity? Uh, uh, we're not we're not sure. Um, but for, for Buckland, we're, we're trying to sort of capture that sort of that utopian sort of um idle that sort of essentially is, is an attractive place to live um we we we're going for somewhere which is which is unashamedly organic we want it to look like it's grown out of hampshire um and you know uh, uh, but equally have the best best sort of technology um and community spirit we've got this sort of this mental venn, venn diagram of sort of community design and, and sort of technology and sort of uh, uh, 
um, looking at that as being sort of our, um, our sort of you know our, our aim. And, and I just thought, just very quickly, just run through a list of the things that are keeping us awake at night at the moment on our, in our project team. So, environmental agenda. You know, we sort of we're, we're, you know we're we're obviously having to look beyond 2025. So it's hydrogen, ambient heat loops, stuff like that, addressing the waste in in in, uh, in construction. Uh, social, uh, you know, the community, inclusive, sense of being, being supportive. So more so, obviously, I think we're becoming better people as a result of, of, of COVID. If you know what I mean, I don't mean to sound, I don't want to mis misquoted by the way, but uh, but it's, it's brought communities together. Um, the world of work, I think, you know, clearly data uh, and having the, this ability to be able to uh, to work anywhere, employment on site, work clubs, venues where people can sort of to go and sort of sit and. In environments of sort of get out of the house to, um, to 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 be on be online and work, um, EVs, pooled cars, you know, sort of terms of transportation, shopping and retail. I, I you know every time really it really upsets me when people keep telling me oh retail's dead, uh, and definitely as a result of COVID. I, I don't think it is. I just think there's a re, there's a um, the high street's different to the towns. I think retail and is, is all about the experience in some of our new places. And so I just think you know there's there's, there's it's just you know, get making sure we get that different experience. Um, automation of smart homes, um, governance, and sort of the last one, skills. I mean, that's one thing that uh, we've got a uh, this sort of visionary landowner who's sort of, is really sort of pushing us to make sure that you know uh, we have a, a sort of a platform that will uh, support the skills sector. Um, you know, we've got um, initiatives locally where we're really wanting to try and sort of you know utilize the, the sort of the tech colleges and the uh, uh, and the schools to try and you know really make construction attractive to uh, uh, to the school leavers and get them back into it. So I think uh, hopefully that will just give you a sort of a fly through of, of some of the, the things that we're worried about and thinking about, and uh, hopefully it will help us to uh, answer some of these questions that we get thrown at us. Thank you, thank you, John. Um, just a quick question to come back to you on. I mean, one of the points you made was that uh, you've got a single local authority with a strong leader who's committed to support your project. Oh. And you've got a single landowner who takes a very enlightened curatorial approach um, to the mission, if you like, of, of um, Wellborn. Um, how important is that in terms of simplifying everything, this partnership between the, the single landowner and the, the council? And where, and I've given your house building experience, how do you see house builders fitting into this? And I'm thinking, really, you know, you're a master developer, but there are other examples around the country where that role has been taken by a traditional house builder model. So, what are yeah. your thoughts on that? Yeah, so so I, I think you know working at working at Granger, we sort of had this um, a bit like places for people uh, where Mary was. We had this sort of approach where we would we would service uh, land and then transact with house builders and sort of you know in a in a in a, cons in a considered way, which 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 sort of understood um, you know what they were after. You know, in terms of you know, so we would take care of all the infrastructure, the social infrastructure, uh, make sure that we built the place, invested in that, knowing that when we sold on to the house builders, they would just be literally focused on 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 building the uh, build building the properties. Um, our model at, at Wellborn sort of it's a little bit it, it's taking that on to another to another level. As I say, we've got this sort of this uh, uh, we've got a landowner who's uh, who's extremely driven and 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 has got that sort of a patient capital approach a bit so, so tying into a lot of the work that um charlie dugdale and, and mary have been doing at the uh, build better beautiful commission of seeing this as a really a real long-term 
project very different to the to the to the house build approach where you know for all the right reasons you focus really on your you know you're eating what you're killing you know you're focused on the sort of the, the next two to three three years um i think how does that how does that fit in with how it works with planning the local authority i think we, we're still we're still unfortunately we've got the uh a mentality in the system which is when we look at things like viability reviews or delivery models or mechanisms, we're still focused on that sort of, you know, house builder viability model approach, which is so different to, you know, to this stewardship approach of someone saying, well, hang on a minute, look, you know, we could we could take a long term view here. And, you know, I don't know. I, I, so I do feel that um, we get beaten up. Um, or we get tried, we try they try and force what we're doing into a particular model, because that's all that's that's all that's known about, I think. So, um, I, 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 yeah. Okay, Mary, do you want to come back in on that? I, I couldn't agree more with what um, John said. Actually, you've got to to strip out the delivery model for the place with the phases of development. Mm -hmm. And this is, you know, I agree this this point about house builders. They have a massive role to play because they can build homes really economically. But they're house builders. There's a kind of um, hint in the name they're not place creators. And, and I think some of them are getting more involved, but actually that gets to a point of scale where it's beyond their comfort zone. Um, and I think that's where you start to get into the sort of what's above a garden village. But I do agree, and I've had the, the issue time and time again, you look at viability assessments, they're a two dimensional, they try and appraise a, a 6,000 home place, the same as they would a, a 500 home development. And, and a sort of how much land costs, how much it costs to build and what you can sell it for. There's no thinking about how you drive absorption rates and all of the stuff that was in the let, Letwin review, how you actually phase and deliver infrastructure to build value. They just doesn't have that dimension of time coming into it. And I, and I do think that's an area. Um, it was the point I was sort of saying about um, getting the right fixes and the certainty on deliverability. Um, and I mean, no, we haven't mentioned North Essex where you had that sort of vision and it was a set of paradigms to look at, you know, something that's so long term. All the things John's saying with environment to say they're not deliverable today is stating the obvious, but you know that they can be deliverable tomorrow and you've got that ambition to work too. So, yeah, I think the whole way we assess whether something is deliverable viable is not necessarily the right word either because long-term investment looks at returns in a different way um but yeah I, I think there's a lot of work that, that we need to do and perhaps that's something with homes england coming into the fray on it that that thinking can really start to to be embedded more sandra do you want to come in on this um no i don't think so at this stage i mean i think i'm interested in mary's comment about viability being very one-dimensional and I suppose my experience will probably confirm that that when you're doing a appraisal or something you're looking at the cost now the package now not able to build in that phasing etc but yeah no I don't want to add any more than that fine um I was struck John made another point which was around central government and I'm aware that um with Wellbourne, there have been issues in terms of having a conversation with MHCLG Department of Transport and you know the treasury and the other various departments fit together what do you think mary about this idea of having a kind of whitehall champion that would lead that would go to bat if you like on behalf of individual projects to sort of navigate whitehall and make and help um delivery projects unlock things 
Yeah, I mean, the Commission did talk about this Minister for Place, um, and it was also a minister, it was almost like a minister without port a single portfolio in the sense of the idea would be it would convene those conversations. Because again, I think actually MHCLG felt that should be them. And I think with John's experience and many others, that's not necessarily the case. You do need input from the Department of Health if you're going to have to provide a new hospital and have some idea when that's going to be provided. You are going to have to get DOT or the rail authorities or the utilities, which is the bane of everyone's um, life when you're trying to plan things forward. And, and so I do think um, it was an area both at, at central government level and at a local level. John touched on the point about design by highways, um, you know, and, and the servicing of a place. There are so many barriers that if you change the thinking, um, and again with the Commission, they use the example with, with highways, if a local authority had that ownership of a place and one of its key metrics and, and KPIs was about the health of its its population, then highways would less be about easing congestion and it would really be focusing on how can we really help people to walk, to cycle, because you'd be measuring success in a different way. And I think um, we do need that mentality at, at local government. Currently, it's brilliant the role that Homes England has. But until their metrics start to shift more to what English partnerships used to have with things as Sandra was saying, employment, economy, you know, mm -hmm. some of that dimension to what they're doing, they would have greater flexibility with how they direct that infrastructure investment to get an even better impact. Okay, thank you. I'm struck that we've talked obviously a fair bit about the philosophy and the, the the leadership of these projects we've talked less about communities i think sandra in her presentation made some very important points about setting up a local trust and finding ways of engaging with the community clearly one of the reasons why housing delivery has been on the agenda every year that we've all been in the industry is because very often local communities oppose development and um you know it's the if we could crack the nut of how do we make the public welcome new housing i think we'd all um, be very happy but some um garden communities are welcomed and fit into and, and some face significant opposition sandra what's your feeling about that and what what more can we do to um address public consent and support okay um i think my feeling is that where a, a, a local authority a place faces the opportunity for growth it needs to set out early its broad vision and then engage local people. And that can be setting up a community forum, it can be setting up a partnership forum, it can be doing some form of engagement that over time regularly reports on the on the shaping up of a, of a growth area, shaping up of a garden village, and it enables the community to comment on the kind of school they want, the kind of shared facilities, the kind of access and linkages they want. And I know that some of the growth areas, I mean, I know that the work that Mary's worked on in Harlow, we've never talked about it, but I know that that is linking up to the local town and is a growth area that's being planned very carefully. I know that down in Kent, where I'm originally from, which is why Epsuit was so interesting to me, down at Otterpool, an extension to Folkestone, that's gone through carefully and the objections are, are, are have gone away. When I was working in the Vale of White Horse, we were planning two very large growth areas around um, Wantage, um, Grange Farm and Crab Hill. And both of those areas, those communities knew they were coming and there was a lot of engagement. So when the 
first planning applications went to committee uh, in, in detail for those areas, we didn't have the objections that members were afraid of. So it's just that engagement, that information share, and I guess some give and take, you know, make some things change, show you've listened. At Ebbsfleet, we've set up um, a community forum for the new residents to help them engage in taking forward the next phases of growth. So planning things like the community facilities are being done with support from local people for the kind of things they want, the scale, and there's some amazing things coming out of that. Engagement, keep doing it. <laughs> This is probably one for you now, John. I mean, I'm struck by the fact that to get consent in the first place, to get a planning application through, you need to have a plan, and that needs to have community benefits to build support. But then there's a point that Sandra's making, really, about that being, to a certain extent, organic and developing within a set of principles as you engage with communities. Do you think that's uh, an approach that you'll be looking at, John? Well, yeah, yes. I mean, um, I mean, I've got a colleague who who heads up our sort of community liaison group, and uh, it's, it's absolutely fantastic how um, um, you know we've we've got we've got all the action groups who just come straight to us uh, all the time. So I think that's that's just that's just good good um, um, uh, you know a good way of of, of, of you know communicating with the locals. Um, uh, you know, I, I think as Sandra said, you know. Being able to sort of, uh, at a very early stage, sort of uh, bring people along by making people understand the the decisions that you're having to to go through as a local authority, and I think you know, I mean, where we are down in in South Hampshire, you know, the local authority was sort of wrestling against sort of you know lots of you know distributing the the housing in in lots of different places versus uh, finding this one location. I, I do remember listening to to a very learned developer um, uh, who was saying about how you know we needed to compensate more, you know, a bit like France and uh, say learned developer is now the chair of uh, Homes England. But uh, you know, in terms of making sure that people, um, you know, you know who are who are really affected by the development, you know, don't don't feel like they've uh, they've been dropped in it, and they do actually sort of get sort of some form of compensation. Andrew, could I? perhaps coming on this point as well on on community because sandra touched on the experience um with sort of harlow and, and girlston i think that had decades of ingrained opposition to the development um and it's really a case of, of i think two things the commission said about and the planning white paper touches on this idea of pushing democracy upstream a lot of people are really unaware of that local plan stage when these decisions about where growth is going to happen take place and if they miss their chance there then actually they're fighting a war for a battle that's already been lost and with Gilston, um what we did that really started to change the conversation was hired a, a, a silver double-decker bus because we weren't allowed in any of the village halls for all the barricades were up and we drove around the area and all it said on it was where will you live in 20 years come and talk to us so we didn't talk about the site that we owned and people from all backgrounds came in and started talking. And, and this was quite a few years ago. This was probably about 2013, 14. But they were talking about the housing crisis, how it affected their families, their children moving away, their grandkids not having anywhere to live, no suitable homes for older people. And once you've got them understanding that urgent need for homes, they then engage in, in a sensible conversation about where should you deliver them? And what are the infrastructure constraints and so on? Because it's that bit about infrastructure that's of, often the biggest barrier. And, and I think with Gilston, you know, the, there was the parish councils there 
and I have a real huge respect for those individuals because once they lost uh, the opposition to it being allocated in the plan, they took a really difficult decision to work with, with the developers, with the landowners. They still wish the development would go away, but they wanted to get the best possible outcomes for their community and to have a genuine influence and to put in place not just stewardship, but governance for the future generations. And, you know, I think that was perhaps quite unique in, in the way that they took that decision, but it is about building trust. It's doing all the things, you know, as John's been saying and Sandra's been saying, and it's delivering on your promises. It's, it's having an honest conversation. And I think, unfortunately, sometimes um, we don't involve communities in the right way. That, that links into one of the questions that's come in from our audience today, which is asking the question about um, the billions of pounds that might be needed for government to invest in infrastructure, affordable housing, green space, to allow garden communities to meet some of these um, principles. So I suppose the idea is that if communities are aware of the benefits and the infrastructure is, is there, is going to come, then they'll be more supportive of it. And I suppose the question is making the point that really this is about the government stepping up and recognising a responsibility to pump money in. Sandra, do you have a view on that? Well, that puts me on the spot, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> I was just reading the question which I've been sent. Um, I think there's an issue here because most of these schemes can make a reasonable contribution. So it's yes. not just about the government stepping in but it's about being clear at the very outset when you're planning a growth area, when you're planning the infrastructure and community requirements about how that might, what that might cost, what's reasonable and what might need to be delivered through, let's call it top up investment fund, HIF funding, whatever. But you know, this is a shared cost and I wouldn't go away from the model of the developer must pay and cont contribute. Um, but I think there are some schemes that are difficult. There's another much bigger issue too, that on some parts of infrastructure, it's about order of delivery. So in Ebbsfleet, we needed to have a bridge to link two parts of the garden city. We probably needed less as a road than we did as a cycling walking route, but we needed to have that link. And that was pump ride through our capital programme early. That's made an enormous difference to the planning of the whole place. But other things, schools, Green infrastructure, green space, no, that comes through in, in quite a large part through the 106 and the development packages. Obviously, there's some topping up, but it, it's a set it out clearly at the beginning and be clear who's going to pay for what would be my mantra on that. John, does this go back to your point earlier about navigating Whitehall, um, whether it's identifying funds or simply getting support and commitment to work? It, 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 it doesn't. I think I think this is where the the, the, the sort of the some of the programs like the HIF funding and, and maybe I think SHIF when it com when it uh, comes out should should help. I think with with those funding programs, if no, no knowing that you, you know your, your first five years of a twenty five year project a, a, a hellish you know prohibitive you know so you, you you're going to be <laughs> towards the end of the project you're, you're going to be underwater and i think having having the ability to try and um put take borrow money from from the government to deliver infrastructure and then paying it back as a roof tax i think landowners developers i think would 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 jump at that you know even paying a you know a, a modest coupon so that the government is 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 doing it doing its bit but uh, could be argued 
um, not 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 funding uh, you know funding the scheme. Um, I think that could play play a huge part. I mean, it, it it is it's sort of there already, as I say, with HIF or shift, but albeit it's uh, it's, it's extremely complicated uh, process of, uh, of of accessing it. Mm. Mary, are you, what's your view on the billions of public funding that might be required? I I think it's the point that. Um... Sandra was making about being clear what it's needed for. I think the problem that, and John's alluded to it, it, it's trying to find the right bits of government funding to support the things when you need it. And I think what we need to shift to is actually having an investment plan because it is an investment. Um, if government puts seed funding in, doesn't try and take a coupon out day one, doesn't try and get it all repaid by year five when actually the housing's only just starting on that point. And there is a clear route where it's going to get a return on its, its investment. But it, it needs to be looking at, as Sandra was saying, when it needs to go in. Um, being idealist, it would be fantastic if every development could start with the schools and the roads and everything going in that. There's always trade-offs about getting residential away and cash flow in it. Um, but I think, you know, and and, I think the question was sort of alluding to it, things like affordable housing. Um, actually, that shouldn't, that's part of the development. That's part of how you make a, a value of the land. Um, it isn't about a burden on the developer. And it might be some of these things flex where you get it lower in some phases, higher in others, as John was saying about th some things being more back-ended and, and so on. Um, so I think pump priming is necessary. And I think it, it would actually use potentially less money if it was not just put through specific funding streams um, and had that bit more flexibility to look at infrastructure in its totality and what's needed. Mm. Mm. Uh, there's another I mean, Andrew, sorry, just, sorry. just on, that last, uh, on that last bit, you know, if, if they were to use uh, a, a system where you could, you could you effectively sort of take a, a pump primer scheme and then via the 106, you know, tie it in so you've got a roof tax. I mean, that would streamline the process immensely if local authorities could sort of apply for it and, and use the existing framework to to pay for uh, schools and infrastructure and stuff. So, okay, I was just coming back to the, the point that Mary made in her opening comments about land value capture, and one of the questions that we've had in has asked about whether the land value capture models um, could be explored more. Um, and perhaps using CPL um, powers. Do you have a view on that, Mary? Um, certainly, the, it's it's something that the TCPA has and will continue to do a huge amount of work on because I think the issue that we sometimes have is too much land value leaks out too early in the process. So you get a planning consent, there's this perceived huge uplift in the value of the asset and someone crystallises it at that point and takes it out. I think if you actually do have the opportunity with a landowner that is going to stay in for the longer term, then actually that increase is taken out more incrementally over time. Um, and you don't get the viability argument that a house builder debating how much they paid for the land and they've paid for the land on the basis of speculating that they can drive down infrastructure, they can drive down affordable housing. If you've got very clear local plan policies that says if you want to develop here, this is the standard, this is what you are going to deliver, and there isn't a compromise on that. There is a natural land value capture because actually you're valuing the land after you've delivered all of those commitments. But I think it is the role that Homes England and the public sector can really look at. It's what delivered 
the new terms and you can debate whether you know the the merits of them are otherwise but they delivered at scale and at pace um and i think it, it is an area really that needs to be explored but i also think it goes back to what john was saying as well about the viability assessment and it's the role of the landowner within that uh, Andrew, just 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 on yeah just just on that i, th I think you there's been some some really good analysis um i think it was night frank did it uh about schemes coming forward and how actually when you look at the the big garden villages i mean the issue is not garden villages you know these big schemes like garden villages mdas they seem to if you tot up the amount of infrastructure they provide compared to in a local area all the other development sites that come through it is shocking you would not believe it so you know the the, the land values that sort of they net back to you know several hundred thousand pounds an acre for a sort of someone doing a 200 unit scheme whereas you look at the garden villages and they're all sort of you know at best um a hundred thousand pounds an acre or something like that so um so i think you know they try to standardize that with sill obviously but um it, it, it's not quite worked but um they, they do need to uh, you know, make sure that all the development sites are paying for all the inf all of the infrastructure in a, in a district. Sandra, do you want to come back on and also on this issue of CPO powers and exploring them to capture um, value? I, I, I think on the CPO powers, that's such a long drawn out process, and uh, whether that would draw value back down and enable value to be made back up later, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I've always steered away from CPO sites if at all possible. I mean, that's much more about local authorities setting out their vision and expectations for a site and trying to persuade the landowner, whoever it is, to, to bring that site forward. Um, no, I, I don't want to say anymore. In due course, I quite like to come back to the point about the government setting out an ambition a bit more for where these developments should be and maybe just explore that a tiny bit more. That was the one thing I think I've heard that maybe sent you know we have more leadership about where areas will be supported in the order that places will come forward and therefore where additional funding and support might be kind of out with the planning process because the planning process can be so slow but perhaps I mean, that's a point that, that actually begs another question which is the relationship between this and the white paper on planning reform and one of the elements that you'll be aware has changed is the attitude towards housing numbers and housing targets and an attempt to bring in a new algorithm to decide um, where housing should be allocated and then a change of tack on that following some criticism. So there is a, there is a question about the extent to which the white paper and any um, future planning proposals that come forward will address this issue about where the government provides support. One of the areas that I don't understand really why we don't address it more is the issue of regional planning and regional structures. Um, which is something that um, the government always seems to shy away from. So, Sandra, do you want to come back in on that and this issue about, if you like, government leadership? I, I think the, there's two different things going on here. So there's a real issue about the regional spatial framework plan, planning in the UK, how places link together, you know, the TCPA, and in, certainly in my career, we've always advocated stronger regional or sub-regional planning that enables different places to link together. But at a, a different level, you know, that we already see areas where local authorities collaborate to bring forward growth. And so, for example, I know familiar with the schemes around Worcester, Gloucester, Cheltenham, where several different councils have identified an area for growth of planning that together. 
that cuts across planning policy, it cuts across possibly delivery plans, and they need a shared model to get on with making that happen. And I know, you know, I'm not so familiar, but the models in the Oxford Cambridge corridor, for example, will be similar. I think there's an issue about can all these areas be supported and at what stage or is there some kind of priority and is that going to support growth out and beyond London levelling up? It's a very complicated conversation, but some clarity, I think, would help the local placemakers, really. What makes it even more complicated is there's a sort of half-baked half conversation about local government reform and the shift towards more unitary authorities. So I suppose this issue about scale, it's, it's obviously very much more straightforward if you've got a single landowner and a single authority with ambition than it is where you're trying to patch together different authorities, maybe with competing views and interests, or way, where maybe central government may decide that there should be a new community in this location, but there is local resistance. Um, Mary, do you have a view on that? I mean, obviously, I, I understand the TCPA's views on regional and spatial sub-regional planning. It does seem to me to be part of the jigsaw, part of the toolkit, if you like, which governments are shying away from. Yeah, I mean, that. The, these are always going to be larger than local decisions or a degree of, whilst they need to, to have local support and buy-in. Um, they they impact more on a, a specific land ownership, a specific local authority boundary. And I think it goes back to John's point about that central government buy-in. And, and actually the idea of having a strategic plan, we've got levelling up, we've got an infrastructure investment you know, investments happening. There's all of these things happening. At what point do they actually come together and then determine that, that sort of future plan for this country in the way that actually Wales is trying to do, Scotland has a view on, you know, we, we do need to have a think where there's big infrastructure going in. What does that mean for, for housing growth? It's clearly getting pushed back within the Oxcam corridor because it feels too top down. But if it's identifying where there needs to be economic growth, um, the bit about the algorithms and the housing numbers, I mean, we could have a whole debate about that one. But we need to look at where housing goes to support growth and if there are places where housing can be used to actually drive growth. And I think yeah. they are two different things. And that bit about infrastructure planning has a massive part to play within it, really. John, do you want to come back in on that? No, I, well, I, I agree. I think that, uh, especially that last point about um, you know, is is the housing needed to to address the shortage, or is it is it there to address the growth? Um, I mean, you know, we we had that in the old, uh, you know, the old regional spatial strategies, didn't we? Where you know, it was it was handy just knowing that the next level up there was sort of some sort of master plan. Um, I was well, as as you know, Andrew, you know, we've been sort of trying to trying to sort of you know go up the chain of all these different departments to try and get people to talk to each other and uh, yeah. I think someone said that the, that the only person that sort of links all those people is, is, is Boris Johnson or his chief of staff and it was sort of it was like oh god you don't want to be bothering Boris with uh, with a motorway junction on the M27 do we and it was like no so there you go so I, th I think um, I think I think we do need that um, that sort of however it is whether it's a regional and, I, and it's really weird because there's lots of different groups that are spinning up across the country and there's there's one that's uh, that's you know is a it's a very good group but it's it's becoming big it's becoming sort of a, it's designed not to be political but it's about the sort of southeast regional transport group and they're they're there to sort of join together almost sort of backfilling where 
the old sort of surplan type sort of role used to be but it's sort of you know it's a coming it's a coming together but it doesn't have any sort of real authority but i don't know you know should, should we have a regional ministers yeah it's um the thing that strikes me about a lot of the government proposals at the moment there's a lot of well-intentioned stuff coming out which we could all support but it seems very disjointed um the, you know the conversation about algorithms and numbers the, the measures in the white paper the, the fact that the regional and the uh, local government reform and, and devolution agenda has been put back it doesn't i think they I think government's decimated at the moment, though, isn't it? When you think, when you speak to people in government, you think, you know, they're not able to walk down the corridors and and speak to their, you know, directors of the various departments. It's just, I think it's, it's. I mean, I can't, I can't wait for us just to get back to a situation where, uh, where, where, where the government can just get on with their job. Okay. There's another question. There's a couple of questions that have come in that are directly linked to this, and I'll come back to Mary um, immediately. One, one question is whether local authorities, how can a small local authority organise themselves to deliver several thousand homes and build new communities? And is there a case for reviewing council officer and councillor structures? And um, I suppose that links into the question of what is the right scale of local government um, authority and if you like partnership between authorities to achieve the change we want. So whether that's the a single authority or whether it's the structures that bind them together, the sub-regional conversation we've just had. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think we touched on earlier, a lot of the growth is happening in small districts are the actual planning authorities, and they are struggling to cope. They've never had to plan for this scale in, in, in one place. And I think they, sh they struggle in sort of practical issues that a lot of the areas, they can't attract the calibre of people in at a senior level into the authority to help deal with it so even when they've got the ambition to do it you know that the, they can struggle so i think there is a case to to sort of um have a deeper level of support for them the the, the gilson example actually the county council started to really step into a role as, as well as the garden town where you had the three districts and two counties working together and putting resource in through Homes England and government. Actually, what I think was quite transformational was the role of the county council, because Hertfordshire County Council started really getting their head around growth across the whole patch. And they brought in people that were doing those conversations about, you know, bringing the highways officer and the education team. So we can talk about, well, if we don't put the school in, then what's it going to do for modal shift? And so they were doing a sort of wraparound depth of, of support, which was actually quite a good model. But when it came to that final push to get, you know, things ready to go to a committee, to get the consent in place, to sort the 106, there just wasn't the resource there to be able to do it. So I, I, I do think this bit about larger than local, it's not taking decisions away, it's empowering them and resourcing them to be able to take those decisions effectively. I, I just wanted to bring in another question, and then this is a question to link back to Sandra's point about the London resort and um, the NSIP process. Because um, at BECG, as you know, we work on um, many, many town and country planning applications across the UK. But roughly 40% of our work, I think, is um, national infrastructure projects, development consent orders. So we do a lot of that work as well. So we're always very interested in the role of the inspectorate and how that fits in with the role of local authorities in planning. So the question that's come in is whether there's a case now for using the 
NSIP uh, process to, if you like, turbocharge delivery of housing, you know, 5,000 plus unit schemes, whether going direct to the inspector and going through NSIP is the way forward to get out of the, if you like, the, the mud which often seems to happen at local authority level, particularly in schemes which are very contested. Sandra, do you want to come back on that? I don't think I know the answer. Um, some of you will know that I've been recently appointed as the Community Forum Chair for the Brad, Brad Hobby Power Station. So I'm working alongside an NSIP project and working with the community voice, the local authorities, the different organisations and stakeholders. I've also been helping with a road in Sussex, same kind of model as Independent Chair and at Stonehenge on some workshops and in all those places whoever was making the big strategic decision the local voice still needed to come through so my instinct would to be say no let's find another way of giving that authority that's getting 5,000 new homes the support i made that comment earlier because i was thinking should you know in the past we've seen kind of government regeneration plans that have said we're going to support these places to grow and then the resources followed which wasn't about planning but was about places and if, if the 6,000 home growth on a small district was one of those, then we would know that there would need to be support either in setting up a delivery body or support to the planning plus team. But there would be a skill set to do that. And I suppose I worked in Wokingham trying to sort this kind of thing out in 2012, that kind of time, fantastic piece of work. They had the resources. We got some extra resources offered from HCA, but actually we still wanted to do it locally. The, the members wanted to do it locally. So it's it's having that that ability to say, kind of help, let's get this straight, and then finding a model that works and go forward. And I think the TCPA, Homes England, other organisations have got lots of ideas about different models that work. And there are plenty of people, probably like me, who could go in, like me and Mary, if you like, John as well, who could go in and say, have you thought of this? Why do you do it this way? What will work for you here? That's where I would go from. John, um, Sandra's point essentially is that obviously you need to work with the communities that are there and empower the authorities to make the right decisions. But where you've got a situation where we need to allocate thousands of homes in a particular area, and it isn't going to be popular or supported, or maybe the local authorities either don't have the resources or don't want to commit the political will to that. Do you think there's a role for the inspectorate and instant to step in and say, you know, we will take that decision at a national level, uh, and then, and then, if you like, the that to sketch the outline of the permission, and then the local authority can get involved on the delivery and the shaping of the plan. Well, I was going to say, you, you've got that already, haven't you? It's appeal, the appeal process. But uh, um, I, I think I, I echo the thing about, you know, don't don't lose the locals uh, because it is so important. If you, if you are on that process, if, if it is contentious and uh, and and it's, it's, and it's, it's a needed project and you've, you, you've got that right uh, to go to that sort of uh, higher body. Um, so so I, I would prefer to be sort of working with the locals, but Going back to your the point of your question, which is, um, you, you know, do can these big schemes overwhelm local authorities? I'd, I'd say yes, you know, on, on lots of different levels. I mean, they're they are once in a lifetime schemes, aren't they? You know, if you're a sort of a a, a planning officer, you know, if you get if you get a, 
a garden village or something like this this is this is your moment you know this is like you know you're gonna you're not gonna get you're not gonna get struck by lightning twice you know this is something that could could uh you know set you up and i always think that you know it's, it's if i was a planning officer i'd be sort of thinking my god get this on my cv and get it done i'm gonna be worth you know employing in my next job we, we used to um we used to have the atlas team didn't we that used to be able to come in and sort of sit alongside um local authorities to sort of help them with the sort of mapping out the next stages um i had a couple of experiences about this it sort of it's, it seemed to work and and yet obviously i always used to think if only they put a bit more through a bit more experience and um and and, and got a few more people involved um now what's interesting homes england recently is that they, they, they've 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 employed some really talented people they've got some people in in that organization and people from the, the house building sector that you know have been you know have earned the spurs and yet a lot of them have been funneled into the department that is then going and buying their own development sites and their own garden villages so sort of it's almost like you know we turned around and we're sort of thinking oh well hopefully they've got that guy that's going to going to come and help us out but they're just like oh no, no he's on the investment side he's going and buying stuff so they've actually become competition not 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 that you know not that sort of that uh, lifeline that we need uh, to help us out so yeah Andrew, can, can i perhaps make a bit of a case for the idea of, of getting the inspector in and i think there is the hook in the white paper to think about it because picking up sandra's point actually whilst it's it, not necessarily you know treating um garden communities as an NSIP but the process that you have to go through as i understand it and i've never gone gone through it but it's very defined it has mm. to show how communities and others are engaged and it has that sort of rigor and perhaps a bit more objectivity um rather than some of the local politics that will invariably come into play because i think sometimes you can go through the planning process locally and you can get the caliber of and, and really bumpy cv up as, as john said but there can be a political paralysis to take that decision to actually feel able to make that commitment so so maybe there is a, a an alternative process that isn't used everywhere but it could be at times that it's the right one to do because it has got that rigor and involvement um and and to stand up to scrutiny i think that's our experience at bcg because we're involved on the community engagement um and the consultation side both of TCPA and and um, DCO or NSIP planning. And you can do good or bad engagement under both regimes. At the end of the day, the quality of the engagement, the outreach um, has to be there. The thing about NSIP, I think, is there's a more um, templated, set out, more rigorous, more structured process because ultimately it's culminating in a report to PINs and a, and a, and a single decision. And perhaps because it's a a, an administrator, if you like, rather than a politician making the decision, you have that um, more um, structured process. But I think at the end of the day, um, the key issue is where is the decision made? And I mean, maybe there's an argument for saying we should be talking rather eyebrow, it should be more of a hybrid one where there's a kind of regional version of PINs that can step in and help where authorities are not making progress or are. Um, locking horns as it were i mean that might be the other way of, of looking at it in ncip is in the name you've got national strategic infrastructure projects they are policy driven they've been set out and agreed in i suppose agreed in principle subject to a process 
And that's what I was saying earlier about, yeah, maybe regionalize it, but identifying those garden cities, those garden communities that are the next phase to support, to bring through. Difficult mm. one. It is, it is difficult. I mean, I think we're all sympathetic to the fact that the government are wrestling with really intractable problems. And if you look at the white paper that came out, it was a really classic example where I kept reading things, that, oh yes, great, that's in, and then something else that was a disappointment. And we're not quite sure what's going to come out um, further down the line because there were so many ideas in there and and some things quite developed, some things which are a bit more um, half-baked, I think it's fair to say. I mean, one of the questions that's just come in from um, our audience here is around deliverability and land banking and whether there's a kind of market-friendly approach which, which avoids land banking um, and doesn't have the problems of phased licenses. John, as a former house builder, do you want to comment on that issue, on the, like the delivering, the phasing, and the release of uh, homes to the market? I, I think I think if you try and try and stop land banking, you, you, you're fighting against sort of capitalism uh, full full stop. I think you know it, it's one of these things that there's. I mean, land banking is a, it's a phrase that can be such a, a negative phrase when you talk about sort of delivering homes because it just sounds like sort of grabbing land and all that sort of stuff in reality a lot of house builders would argue that it's it's it's, the, it's their lifeline in order to to ensure that they've got a constant flow of properties to the market because as you know we get caught up and there's big delays and and there's it's it's there's so much money at stake you know they'd, they'd, go, they'd go bust if they didn't uh if they weren't thinking about the next uh, three to four years in terms of uh, where, the, where the sites are coming from um I, I think, I mean, there is always that issue, isn't there, with when you do sort of talk, you know, back to the old surplan, you know, if there was a sort of like, you know, well, we're going to, we think we need a settlement of X number of units in in this town or city. Um, the first thing you'd do is you'd have all your strategic planners from the house builders driving around all the places, looking at, uh, at what land was available for sort of optioning up. And then the, then it would start that promotion period, uh, promotion exercise again i don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because it's just people people going out there and you know uh, and and then put banking on let's <laughs> say banking gambling on get trying to get the best location for houses which then goes into the public arena and it's all assessed for sustainability etc cetera, etc cetera. so um yeah i i i, I just I, I just don't think you could ever stop land banking um unless you nationalize land which you know well, we'll stay clear of that for what that one. Mm. Uh, we have one final question, which I was going to give to um, each of our speakers um, in order, so starting with Mary. And it goes back to the question we've mentioned throughout, which is the white paper. And uh, somebody's asked, you know, if there was one or two or three measures that you would like to see from the white paper come forward in legislation that will really help um, the garden community agenda what would they be mary do you want to kick off on that um oh gosh i think the focus on the local plans is absolutely right the pushing democracy upstream getting people more aware enabling them through technology and a lot of other ways of being more interactive at that stage when you're planning for growth and understanding growth I think the big downside is it shouldn't be, as, as I said earlier, that you take democracy away downstream. And certainly from a TCPA point of view, you know, it, it's more about making it um, 
enable better engagement. I think where there are some good ideas that need to be developed, you know, the idea about actually making planning a more digital process, it's still stubbornly analog and it's not just how you submit a planning application online, it's how you can actually engage people in it to understand mm -hmm. it. Now, how many thousands and thousands of pages, John, went in with your planning application? Sandra, the same. How much do, as a planning committee member, do you have to pour over? And for, for local people to try and understand, it's absolutely impenetrable. And I think if we could break down that barrier, if we could help people visualize what's going to happen, we can take a lot of that fear and misunderstanding and Chinese whispers away. So I think mine would really focus on that. The other thing I'd say about the white paper, there was some great lift and shift from the building, Better Building Beautiful Commission that I was obviously really pleased to see. Um, but it left behind some of the bits about how you actually deliver, how you do think a bit differently. Uh, and I hope that once, as, as John, you described it, we get a government that can function um, an actual govern again that we can re-engage with those because I think that's then the other bit that would help Garden Cities be delivered. Great, thank you very much. Sandra, do you want to comment on the white paper? And yeah, okay. Um, thank you. My thoughts would be to raise up and not lose sight of the emphasis on designing good places and therefore in local authorities that the chief planner should have regeneration, design, house building, other skills, and be more central to the delivery of the council. And in the smaller councils, I know that is really the case. In the bigger councils, it can get lost. It's much easier delivering growth in unitary councils, but the planning function there can get lost under you know, the power of children's and social services and things like that. Um, I'm absolutely with the white papers, IT technical skills improvements, some councils planning services online, the whole piece of work and how they work is terrible. And there's lots of ways of doing it better. I'm not sure that some of the techie people advising the white paper writers was where I would go, but there's something that needs to be done there. And I would help with that. Um, and I think it's not really in the white paper, is it? But I think it's a duty on all planners and people working around planning to care and to stop and think about what they're doing before they make the decisions that sometimes just don't think about the communities they're planning. Interesting, thank you. I mean, we've certainly seen at BCG this sort of pivot and shift towards digital engagement is crucial. We've gone from the beginning of last year, having not done an online consultation, to now having done something like 120. And it's been fascinating to see local authorities and developers embrace it. And actually, you know, initially starting off just having village hall exhibitions online, but moving now to using new presentations, new forms of technology to bring in social media, video and all stuff. So that's certainly an agenda that I'm sure will continue to move forward and hopefully the, the proposals coming out of government will support that. John, what's your uh, wish for the white paper coming forward into legislation? Well, I think it's um, it's along the lines of the Build Better, Build Beautiful Commission, I think. You know, so if, if um, I think they're, they're due to respond on that, but obviously, again, it's uh, tied up with, uh, with government COVID at the moment. But, um, you know, um, embedding embedding the desire to 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 do something better um and spend a bit of time on on the design i think uh almost almost the, the education there doesn't necessarily have to be directed at, at house builders i think the education there 
is with local authorities i think who who come under pressure to deliver the numbers quickly and and mm. and i think so i think giving them um examples and edu education would, would would help help the outcome i love the sound of a chief planner again oh my god i'd love to to be able to go and sit down in front of someone who who you're scared of and for someone to, for them to sort of take a view on on something for once you know an actual you know actually make it make a decision that would be uh, that would be fantastic i think i think we've lost a lot of that um you know for, for for the way that civilization the way that we've gone with civilization you know in terms of everyone has to do everything by a process and a book uh now so i don't i don't blame any 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 planners in particular and that one thing that always comes up uh, which i which really pisses me off um is you're not allowed to talk to members and i always think members of the local councillors you should be and, and i'm sure the government changed the rules but i keep meeting local authorities that say you can't talk to the members because they, they'd be prejudiced and stuff and actually they're the people that live there they're the people that take the bullets when things go wrong and i just think you know let's get to that situation where there is that sort of open i'm not saying closed debates but open debates with members where they can ask questions and not feel that they've been judged or 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 anything like that so anyway there you go i'll set box well, yeah. <laughs> can i come you, back on that point about talking to members um, I have quite a lot of experience of informal meetings with members and developers. Way back when I was working in Newham, we did that. And then, you know, in, in Van White Horse working um, at Ebsfleet. I think the councils that say they can't talk to members are not understanding when and how they can talk to members with developers. And uh, I did some work for TCPA, taking out workshops across the UK on delivering development on garden city principles. And this came up several times. And I just said, you know, members, go back to your staff, ask them to have the right meetings. You can do it. And don't be afraid to do it. It makes for better outcomes. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's a strong, it's a strong, um, strong, uh, strong planner who who's able to sort of, you know, to, to, to do that, I think. I think, um, yeah. I mean, our experience working with authorities across the UK is, is incredibly varied. The whole yeah. culture of authorities and the extent to which officers lead the process, members lead the process, the accessibility between them does vary hugely and it can make a massive difference to success. So I think we've had a very good discussion. Um, I can hear that my children have returned, so it's probably a good time for it to end. And um, I think everybody would agree that garden communities are a very important part of addressing the UK's housing challenge. It's very clear there are lots of models out there, uh, models that have succeeded. Uh, models that are facing difficulties and there's a lot of excellent best practice. It's very clear that on this panel we've got people with a huge amount of expertise and excellent best practice and I think I think we all hope that some of that filters through into Whitehall and what comes out of central government in terms of legislation actually captures um, some of that um, some of those ideas and helps address the problems we've got. I think we all hope that at some point this um, dreadful pandemic will be over and we can get government back um, able to put all its energies and focus on these important issues. And actually, I think we should pay credit to MHCLG for the fact that they've kept going, they've been producing white papers, and they are carrying on doing what they're doing, whilst local authorities and central governments are facing such unprecedented challenges. So thank you all for joining us and for listening to this webinar. Thank you to Mary Parsons, Sandra Fire, and John Beresford for joining us and for sharing your expertise and experience. And of course, it goes without saying, if anybody wants any information about BECG or how we can help, 
with your projects and working on this agenda, please do get in touch.